Good morning. Happy New Year, I think, right? First time that we've actually gathered all together and officially we can say Happy New Year. Last time was on Christmas Tide on uh, New Year's Eve. And uh, last week, of course, we got some white stuff that's now pretty much gone, uh, for better or for worse, depending upon who you are. And uh, so I hope you enjoyed your snow day last week and, uh, and welcome back and, and Happy New Year. Um, we're going to be picking up where we left off in November of 2023 in our series in Hebrews, but we are very much nearing the end, final stretch at this point, because we only have three different passages, Lord's, Lord willing, we'll be uh, in the uh, 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 13th chapter of Hebrews for the next three weeks. And um, we're going to jump right in in a moment, but let me say this, because it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews, and this will kind of also help you adjust to the tone of, of today's uh, passage, um, there really is a shift uh, by the author from this masterpiece of these first 12 chapters of, I mean, one of the greatest uh, works in all of the Bible, really, in terms of building this argument based upon who Christ is as to why God's people have redemption and forgiveness in him. Um, and the main theme and thrust of those first 12 chapters again and again that we talked about was Jesus is better, right? Than all that the world could offer, Jesus is better in the, uh, you know, Jewish context than all the, the old covenant could offer, the sacrificial systems, the priests of that time. Jesus was the perfect priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And it's all God's grace at the end of the day through Christ. So all of that has been laid as a foundation before you get to chapter 13. And then there's this almost addendum feel to this last chapter where the author is laying before the congregation most likely in Rome here probably some specific pastoral instructions that were needed given what that church was going through and uh, and and yet I say all this to say remember the foundation remember Jesus is better remember where we've come from so far in Hebrews this letter would have been written almost as a sermon, or excuse me, read almost as a sermon in one sitting, probably took maybe a half hour or so. We've taken a year, right? So we don't want to forget what's come before as we get into these instructions today. Uh, These first six verses, which we'll be in in chapter 13, um, are really these separate exhortations and instructions. They're somewhat unrelated. We'll talk about a way in which they are kind of tied together today, but again, it almost feels like a rapid fire. And here are the last things I need to make sure I get in that are so important for you to hear and to do. And so I'll kind of be um, approaching it that way as well, where uh, each verse almost stands alone a little bit in terms of devotionally and instructionally what the author is trying to communicate and what God wants to communicate to us today. So Hebrews chapter 13 uh, is where we're going to be, verses 1 through 6. Feel free to grab one of the um, Bibles in, your, in the pew rack if you want. Um, the ones we use here at Terra Nova are those blue English Standard Version Bibles, and you'll find Hebrews 13 on page 190, uh, excuse me, 1197. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. I know that those Bibles are kind of scattered uh, inconsistently throughout, so if you don't have one nearby or your own, then you can follow along on the screen behind me. And once you've had a chance to find that, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Let brotherly love continue. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said... I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Father, may all of these words and the ways in which they need to pierce our hearts and encourage our hearts this morning do so by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I should say up front, if you didn't get the email this week, when we get to uh, the portion that's talking about marriage and sex, that there will be some terms that parents of younger children may want the benefit of being able to unpack on a different occasion or maybe after today's message. But I just wanted to give you a full disclosure, heads up as to that. Um, and, and all of our classrooms downstairs are open if you wanted to opt for that route. Uh, We're going to start where the author starts, though, this morning, and that's in verse 1, where he says, continue in brotherly love. And I I would paraphrase that this way just to get us thinking about it in the way I think that the author intended for us to, which is don't take love for granted. And in particular, don't take your love for granted. Sure, don't take other people's love for granted, other people's care and concern for your life. But right now, he's essentially saying, don't take Christian love for granted, Christian Now, why would he need to say this? Well, probably because of how easy it is for believers to get comfortable in thinking that we are loving others with the love of Christ rather than defaulting to a love that is more familiar to the world. The the actual Greek term that is used here for brotherly love is Philadelphia, literally Philadelphia. Basically, the city just ripped it off verbatim and uh, named themselves this, and it means, of course, the city of brotherly love. So this is the term that the author is using here in Greek. And on Christmas Eve, if you were with us, we talked about the love of Christ culminating in the Advent series of hope, peace, joy, and love. And that preeminently God's love is expressed through this Greek word agape, right, with the sense of unconditional love. Yet, when any of these words in the New Testament are used, such as Philadelphia or agape, of Christian love in particular, uh, they have a uniqueness. Um, that is unique to God's love in particular um, and has very little distinction from each other. Uh, so, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4.9, the Apostle Paul uses both of those terms almost interchangeably. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, Philadelphia, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love, agape, one another. Okay, so why do I say that? The point is, Christian love of either kind when we're reading it in the Bible, Philadelphia or Agape, is not natural to man. It is not natural to me or to you. It is from God alone. And what that means is it's not automatic just because you're a Christian. 
When we take this for granted, what happens is our love can grow cold toward others. And by implication here from what the author is saying and that he has to charge this congregation to continue to love one another is that this kind of love can cease altogether, at least for a time, if we are taking it for granted. So Terranova this morning, let brotherly love continue. Let this unique and distinct Christian love continue in our midst. Now, a good litmus test for this brotherly love or this distinct Christian love are the next three verses that we see. And so we can sum them up this way. Again, I kind of paraphrase these in slightly different terms to kind of draw out the intention and the meaning. So Christian love uniquely exemplifies itself as we show hospitality to those we don't know, to the stranger. That's verse 2. Christian love is expressed through experiencing solidarity uh, in suffering that is not your own. Experiencing solidarity with other people's suffering and not your own. That's verse 3. And then Christian love is expressed through remaining faithful to the design and covenant of marriage in verse 4. Of course, we have verses 5 and 6 as well. They're a little bit different, uh, but especially those first three instructions that come after let brotherly love continue are examples of what this brotherly love looks like as it's expressed and manifest through Christians. So let's look at each of those. First of all, verse 2, Christian love is expressed uniquely as we show hospitality to those we don't know. Now, similarly to the point made for verse 1, it is easy to care about those who care about us. It is easy to care about those we know, right? And that's not a bad thing. We should care about those we care about. Uh, or that show us care and love. But Jesus has something to say to this effect in Matthew chapter 5, right? We talked about this on Christmas Eve, that even the the Gentiles and the tax collectors, those who, who weren't of the people of God, who didn't have his love in their hearts, loved each other in this kind of a way. They would care for those who showed care for them, but neglect those who they didn't know, the stranger, the foreigner, those who didn't believe the same way that they believed. So if we turn this instruction into a question... The question then, essentially, that the author is asking us to consider is what dignity and value do you assign to those that you don't know, to the stranger? Now, this doesn't necessarily mean the hypothetical person on the other side of the world. At some point, we just have to concede the only one who can love all 8 billion people in this world with the same profound equal love at the same time is God. That is not ours to take up, that mantle. But implied here is somebody who is a stranger. You don't know them, but they're within your sphere of influence. Hence, show hospitality. It's somebody you can actually express this care and this love toward. Now, probably in view, many commentators will say, primarily here are traveling missionaries that the um, Christians in Rome did not know uh, who were coming through. But also, he's not specific here. The author isn't specific. And so the principle can be applied more broadly. This could be a friend of a friend that you find out is in need. It could be uh, a person that you encounter on the street who's asking for a handout. Uh, It could be somebody who shows up looking a little bit bedraggled and has fallen on hard times here on a Sunday morning that you've never met before. It could be a person you encounter in a parking lot at a grocery store who's in need of a jump, and so on and so forth. The stranger is somebody who's within your sphere of influence that you don't know, that has a need And then you recognize the dignity and value of that person and you extend help to them. So the charge is to be mindful of the needs of those you don't really know and assign to them that same dignity and value that Jesus does. To see them through the lens 
that he sees them and knows them, because that evidences this unique Christian love, this brotherly love. Then the author says something that's so mysterious here. He, he says, in so doing, you might even be entertaining angels unawares. And especially because of how this author is so acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, he probably has in view here uh, Genesis chapter 18. It's this account of Abraham who has these three strangers show up on his doorstep, and two of them turn out to be angels. And the third one actually turns out to be the angel of the Lord, many believe to be the, a pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus who took on a human form temporarily prior to the incarnation we celebrated at Christmas. So here's the reality to let sink in here. In serving a stranger in need, you may actually be serving an angel in disguise. There have been times in my own life where after the fact it was such a strange encounter, I just wondered, what could that have been a fulfillment here of Hebrews 13 too. But even if it's not an angel in disguise, even if it's just a person who is in need, take this to heart, that every time you are actually serving Christ. Um, I want to read to you Matthew 25, 34 to 40. And here Jesus is giving this parable of sorts to talk about the judgment day um, and what he will say to those who are the righteous ones on judgment day. He says, then the king will come and say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, what, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, in prison and you came to me. And the righteous are going to answer him and be like, what, what are you talking about? What? We never saw you and did these things to you. And he says, truly, I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. There's something that's so sobering, humbling, empowering about recognizing the fact that when you extend uh, Christian love to those in need, even that you don't know, the stranger, you are doing so to Christ himself. It's a game changer when it comes to the lens through which you see the people around you, and in particular, in this context, the stranger. Now, I I guess I should say, too, not to caveat everything, but in this case, there's wisdom that needs to be applied here, right? So I'm not saying that you don't use discretion. If you are a woman who's driving and you're alone and you see a car broken down at the side of the road and it happens to be just a man, maybe that's not the best situation for you to stop and help out the stranger. But at the same time, we're to walk by the Spirit, Because the reality is it's all too easy to hide behind, well, that's too risky. Or maybe if I give this person this thing, then they'll just abuse it and they'll use it for the wrong purposes. And eventually it ends up just being paralysis by analysis. And we don't end up doing anything. At some point it's no longer wisdom. We're just playing it safe and it's no longer love. It's actually selfishness or self-preservation, right? So we want to be mindful of that as well. So brotherly love seeks to see the dignity and value, even in the stranger, even in those that we don't know personally. And as we show hospitality to the stranger, we expect God is working in that, maybe even supernaturally. So let us live with that perspective before us. And then the author gets into verse 3, another example of expressing this unique Christian love with experiencing solidarity with suffering that's not your own. 
experiencing solidarity with other people's suffering. He says, remember those who are in prison as though you are in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, you can relate because you're in the body. I I like this word solidarity, at least for me. I chose it it, because it means unity or agreement of feeling or action. And you don't have to actually have been in that same exact circumstance to actually feel and show solidarity with that person, enter in compassionately and with sympathy to their situation. The idea here is we allow ourselves to be affected by the suffering of others. You think about the suffering and hardships of those around you enough to the degree that you feel some of what it is that they must feel. You allow your heart to do that. One pastor had uh, said one time, I heard him say that he forces himself to read the news daily, even the worst of it, so that he feels the gravity of the evil in this world, so that he may not become naive or ignorant to it. Right? feeling the brokenness and suffering of those around him. Now, you need to know yourself. That's one person's approach to it. And for others, acquainting yourself with that volume and degree of suffering and evil may actually compete with your ability to do other things that God calls us to, like what Paul says in Philippians 4.8, where we're to think upon those things that are true and honorable and pure and lovely. So know yourself. But the idea is you let yourself feel the pain that others, in particular in your sphere of influence, in your community, are going through so that you can more compassionately enter into their suffering. Now, there might be a couple of reasons why we don't do this, and they kind of serve to be the opposite. So see if you might relate to either of these. And then we'll talk about the antidote or solution. The first one is we might take on more of a savior complex in our posture toward other people, that, on, that is, we take on more responsibility for the suffering of those around us than we were meant for. And what can happen then is we become overwhelmed and eventually numb to people's suffering because it's just too much. The solution here is a couple of things. It's self-awareness to remember that we are but dust and that only the Lord has infinite capacity for compassion and that only the Lord has the omnipotence to be able to address all the suffering of those around us. You and I are just one person. We are not God. You don't have to be their savior. The other reason why we might struggle with this entering into the suffering of others is for self-protection purposes. We may inoculate ourselves from other people's suffering, and oftentimes this is because we're operating within our own strength, we might think to ourselves, man, I, I only have capacity for my own troubles. I'm about to break. I don't know how I could actually extend any kind of sympathy or compassion toward others. So how can I take this on too? This can happen when we forget where our strength to follow Jesus, even into other people's suffering, comes from, which is from Jesus. He will give you the strength to do that. So the solution for those who might err on the side of self-protection are twofold. One is spiritual discernment. Pray regularly, God, would you have me enter into the suffering? Or, or what are the limitations? Like, who is it that you're calling me to enter into with compassion their suffering? Because it's not everyone. And then the second thing is cultivate faith that as you do, God will supply for your needs as you risk compassion for others. It reminds me of Jesus' words and promise in Matthew 6. He said, why are you worrying about all these things? Your food, your clothing, all these basic necessities, that would extend to your emotional needs as well, your basic needs. Why worry about these things? But instead, do what? Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And 
then I will add all these things to you as well. So there's a step, a risk of faith to enter into the things God cares about, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the suffering and needs of others, and trusting, growing in faith, he's going to provide for your needs, okay? So a second expression of this unique Christian love is experiencing solidarity with the suffering of others. A third expression of this unique Christian love is remaining faithful to the design and covenant of marriage. Verse 4. The author says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now I'm going to spend some more time here proportionately to the other portions of our text, because this is actually an area we don't spend a lot of time talking about from the, the pulpit, one of the more controversial issues in our culture today, even within Christendom that's discussed. One of the reasons, by the way, we don't just talk about every contentious issue that exists in society is because this mantra was helpful to me years ago. It's a principle that I continue to stand by. If we preach the Bible in unbiblical proportions, then we're no longer being biblical, okay? However, that said, this is an incredibly relevant issue, marriage and sex, especially within our culture, cultural context. It's created a lot of confusion and so heartbreak in the lives of people both inside and outside of the church. And so with that in mind, I am going to spend a little bit more time here today. The way I'm going to do that is actually by breaking this verse, verse 4, up into three different parts, which are basically three questions we're going to seek to answer this morning. The first one is, how do we all honor marriage? The second one is, how do married people honor their marriage? And the third one is, how does God respond to the dishonoring of marriage? That's really part A, B, and C of this verse. So first of all, how do we all honor marriage? And by all, the author means all here. This is actually all-encompassing. It's addressing those who are married and those who are not. There's a way in which all of us can honor marriage. And there are two ways I'm going to talk about here. Firstly, we honor marriage by defining it the way that the Bible defines it. But it doesn't end there because we need to understand the why. So secondly, we honor marriage by seeing in it God's purposes for it, which ultimately is the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me, is pictured in marriage. We'll talk about that in a moment. So first of all, we honor marriage by defining it the way that the Bible defines it. And succinctly, I would put it this way, that marriage is a monogamous relationship. We'll break down each of these terms between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Now, for some, that's a definition you've long taken for granted. And you're like, yep, you'd be ready to move on. For others, there's some uncertainty here, given how this definition has changed by virtue of what has become culturally normative today. And then still for others, there's those who will, in this room perhaps, believe this is an outdated definition, it's old-fashioned, perhaps it's even unbiblical according to how you understand and read the Bible, and you might even think the limited scope of that definition is actually hurtful to those who would differ from it. So there's a wide range of responses people inside and outside of the church will have to this definition of marriage. It's controversial, but I do believe that the Bible is clear on it. To honor marriage, we have to be honoring the version of marriage that God himself presents to us in Scripture. The best place to do that is going to the very beginning, Genesis 2. And as we'll see in a bit, in the New Testament, when Jesus or the apostles speak to something that has to do with marriage, 
they almost always go back to Genesis 2, before the fall, before sin entered in the world. Here's God's original intention and design for marriage. And here's what Genesis 2, 24 and 25 says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There are three uh, plain things we can deduce from as we read this passage of Scripture. Number one, God has designed for marriage to be monogamous. Number two, God's designed for marriage to be between a man and a woman. And number three, he's designed for it to be permanent. So first, God's designed for marriage to be monogamous. This means between two people. Okay? Not three, not five. Polygamy which is where one man had multiple wives, or I suppose polyandry too, we could be talking about here, only came after the fall, only came after sin entered into the world. It is not God's design for marriage. And in fact, when you read the Old Testament, it's replete with examples of the damage and destruction that polygamy did to families and to society, whether that be Sarah, Abraham's wife, despising her maidservant Hagar, who she had given to Abraham to try to have a child since she could not, or Rachel and Leah, who were the wives of Jacob, and the, and the infighting there, and the jealousy that existed between them, and the brokenness that brought about in their family. Or even when you look at King Solomon, and the destruction that, all, that his, his polygamy led to in his own life, and in the nation of Israel, and the list could go on. It's a destructive example after destructive example. Now, polygamy is not prescriptive in the Bible. It's not a prescription, but It is descriptive. The Bible describes polygamy as a result of the brokenness of the world. God never commands nor condones polygamy. And in fact, he all but condemns it in scripture passages such as Deuteronomy 17, where God gives instructions to the future kings of Israel who are to lead by example the people, including, in verse 17, the kings should not acquire many wives for themselves, lest their heart turn away from the Lord. So that's the first thing that we can say from Genesis 2 that's clear. God has designed for marriage to be monogamous. Secondly, God has designed for marriage to be between a man and a woman. The words here for man and for wife are ish and isha, respectively, in the Hebrew. Isha, the the word for wife, is in the feminine gender, which is meant to show a contrast with ish. There are similarities between men and women, no doubt. God has intended that. And yet there is also differences. The Bible makes clear that both men and women are equal in value, but they are different from one another. And it's those differences together in the oneness that is talked about here in Genesis 2 that showcased most fully the image of God. If you go back a little bit further in chapter 1 of Genesis, God talks in, or, uh, in Genesis one twenty seven talks about how he made men and women, only men and women together. Whether that be in marriage or just in society in general, men and women together most fully showcase the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven. so God created man, at this point mankind, talking generally men and women, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There was purpose and design to God creating not just men, not just women, but man and woman together to most fully image who he is to the world. Today you're going to hear and have for a while now messages to the contrary. 
that a committed relationship between two men or two women is also a valid marriage. If you're on social media, one of the popular uh, lines of reasoning from TikTok or you know, other theologians online, suppose that theologians online, is that Jesus never condemned marriage, so that neither should we. But this is problematic for at least a couple of reasons. Okay, first of all, Jesus did speak to marriage very clearly. When you go to a place like Matthew chapter 19, he's uh, responding to a question here from the Pharisees who are seeking to trap him about divorce, okay, and whether it's legitimate or not. And here's how he responds to them. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus speaks to what marriage is here and he does something far more powerful than single out one negative example. He gives us the original purpose and design, the positive design for marriage by which to deduce all of the counterfeits. And that positive example that he gives is that from the beginning, God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. Now, the other problem is it's a mistake for us to think that Jesus' only authoritative words on the subject are the ones that are attributed to him in the Gospels, the red letters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I have a red-letter Bible. I like it. I like to see where it's Jesus speaking and the rest. But that's not original to the original Gospels that were penned. That's just a helpful tool for us today. And the rest of the words of Scripture as well, we can equally attribute to Jesus' thoughts on the matter. When you consider how often Jesus cited Old Testament passages that he was referring to as Scripture, clearly Jesus understood words other than his own recorded in the Gospels to be divinely inspired. The apostles who Jesus sent out on mission on his behalf to be able to share his word, the apostles viewed each other's words as scripture. An example of that would be Peter speaking of Paul's words in his letters in 2 Peter 3.16, where he calls Paul's words scripture. Paul himself, in 1 Timothy 3.16, as he's writing to his understudy Timothy, says all scripture is God-breathed. He attributes all scripture to God, And then one of Jesus' apostles, John, in the very first verse, John 1.1, tells us that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Therefore, Jesus is ultimately the author behind all the words of the Bible, not just those that are attributed to him in his earthly life and ministry. And there are other passages that are far more explicit, even, that speak to same-sex sexual relationships that where Jesus is ultimately the one speaking and giving us instruction about these things. And I want to give you one example a bit later on, but I also don't want us to get lost in the flow of where we're at. Because there's a third plain thing that marriage teaches, uh, excuse me, that scripture teaches us about marriage. And that is that marriage is designed to be permanent for a lifetime. In Genesis 2.24, once again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The idea of permanency here is what's behind the language of holding fast. Other translations will uh, translate it as united to or bonds to. And then the result, we're told here, is a oneness of flesh that literally happens when marriage is consummated. 
but is also meant to picture something spiritual and emotional that's happening in a marriage as well. Now, the language of bonding, if you use that translation, which is totally appropriate, is helpful here because when you bond two materials together, those of you who are chemists out there or know something about chemistry, often there is a chemical reaction that takes place which literally fuses those two things together so that if you were ever to try to tear them apart, you couldn't do so without a literal tearing of the original materials. A bond is meant to be permanent. But this idea of permanency becomes even clearer than in Genesis 2 when Jesus, in Matthew 19, addresses the Pharisees' question. He indicates first that divorce was only ever permitted to begin with because of the hardness of human hearts, because of our sin, and that it was not this way from the beginning, he says. But then he makes the most radically clear statement in all of the Bible about the intention of permanency for marriage. In verse 6 of Matthew 19, he says, What therefore God has joined together... Let not man separate. Did you know that that came from your Bible? That wasn't just something that the officiant says at a wedding, that actually those are Jesus' words about his intended design for marriage. And by the way, for those at some point who may have wavered, like, man, how much of this whole marriage thing is a human institution, something that man has created and then assigned religious value to versus really something that God created? Well, Jesus makes it very clear here that this is God's design in doing. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, but why has God designed marriage to be these things? Why has God designed marriage to be monogamous between only two people, between a man and a woman, and permanent? Well, that gets into the second way in which we all honor marriage. Not just by defining it the way that God does, not just by defining it the way the Bible does, but by understanding the why behind it. We honor marriage, then, by seeing in it what God intends for us to see in it. It's purpose, God's intended purpose and design. And that is the gospel. That's what he wants to see in it. He wants to see something about the way that he, by grace and grace alone, relates to you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. This comes through maybe no more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus about marriage. He's giving instruction, given instructions to the men and women there about marriage and how to go about it. And once again, he quotes from Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the next verse he continues by saying, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. No more clearly than anywhere else in the Scripture. And in fact, Under the Old Covenant, God's people wouldn't even have had that ability to have that perspective yet. Is the connection between Jesus and his church, the bride, made with what a marriage between a man and a woman is meant to picture? Paul is saying here that marriage is meant to picture that profound relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, Paul says this following instructions on how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, including that wives should lovingly submit to their husband's leadership as unto the Lord, and that husbands should lovingly lay down their lives for their wives as Christ did for the church. And there is a lot in that that we can't fully unpack today, but here's one point I want to draw out. The gospel is unlocked in marriage. The gospel is unlocked in marriage when husbands and wives, not when they begrudgingly fulfill those instructions, but when they do these things, even when, no, especially when it is not deserved. Because that's precisely what Christ did for you and for me. Jesus doesn't wait till you and I are worthy to lay down his life for us. 
He laid down his life for us while we were still sinners. And by the way, even better news, that's a posture of his that remains toward you and I if you are in Christ here today. Jesus' commitment to you and I isn't based upon our worthiness. There are going to be days when we fail him. There are going to be days when we fail him very seriously. And yet his promise, even as we'll see later in our passage today in verse 6, is to never leave or forsake us. Brothers and sisters, there's no better news than that. God has made a marriage covenant with us through his son, Jesus. And the radical thing about this covenant is that God has both set the conditions for the covenant, which is perfect faithfulness. That's how you and I get to be in a relationship with him, is if we are perfectly faithful. And yet he also fulfilled those conditions through Christ, who was perfectly faithful, so that you and I could live securely, knowing that he would never leave or forsake us. And then our privilege for those who are married here today is to so bask in that glory of God's mercy and love that extends to us that we overflow with that same love and mercy towards our spouse for a watching world to see because God has intended and designed for marriages to be a showcase, a picture of his covenantal love with his people and what that love is like. So the design of marriage is not arbitrary. It is not merely social or practical. It exists to teach us something about the radical nature and character of God and the radical nature and character of his love for you and I. So that's the instruction for all of us. All of us can glean from that. All of us can honor those things, what the Bible presents marriage to be and why, what it's for. But then there's an instruction as well, specifically for those who are married, and it's this. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. So here we answer the question of how do married people honor their marriage? The marriage bed here, if it's not clear, is a euphemism for sex within a marriage. So the author is saying that married people honor marriage in general, and married people honor their marriage and their spouse in particular by reserving sexual intimacy for their spouse alone. Okay? Now I want to clarify a couple of things here. All adultery begins in the heart before it ever culminates outwardly in an act of unfaithfulness. So while physical adultery is primarily in view here, adultery in the heart shouldn't be overlooked. Again, Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew chapter 5. If a man or a woman looks lustfully in their heart upon another man or a woman, they have committed adultery in their heart, he says. So yes, there may be externally greater consequences and ramifications for a physical affair, but it all starts in the heart, Jesus says. All of us have fallen short there. The second thing I want to clarify is it's not only sexual fidelity to one's spouse that is a measure marker of you honoring them and you honoring your marriage. You could be chased outside of your marriage and not honoring your spouse in other ways. For example, we honor our spouses by seeking to understand who are they really. We honor our spouses by seeking to understand what are their needs. And oftentimes, we sacrifice our own desires for theirs. But here in our passage today and elsewhere in Scripture, sexual fidelity, faithfulness, rises to the top as both the way in which we honor our spouses as well as the one violation in a marriage by which Jesus says it's so serious that it can be legitimate grounds 
for a divorce. So why? Why is there so much weight given to the act of sex? Again, a lot that we could unpack here. A lot beyond the scope of what I even fully understand and the mystery of God's intentions. But one thing I will say is this. The act of sex is not only a way for a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, to enjoy one another, but it's a profound way for them to reaffirm their marriage vows to one another. To say to them, I have given myself to you and I am yours alone. Think about it. The marriage bed is the most vulnerable position that a man and a woman, a husband and a wife can be in. And then in that context, you offer the most profound reaffirmation of your marriage vows. And it's that way by design. So when that's offered instead to someone who is not your husband or your wife, if you're married, you're not only breaking your marriage vow, but you are lying to that person who is not your spouse. Because rather than that being a means of communicating to them unconditional commitment, it becomes a selfish act that uses another human being to gratify your own fleshly desires. That's why adultery is such a serious violation of God's design for marriage and sex. Because it moves from a depiction of God's radical and selfless love for his people to a desecration of that picture and making sex instead about selfish gratification. And if God's commitment to us is revealed most fully in his son, having been crucified on a cross for us, the most selfless act in history, then nothing could be a further departure from that picture than the selfish gratification of infidelity within a marriage. So how does God then respond to the dishonoring of marriage? The third part of our verse here today tells us, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He will be judged, we're told. Now, I I told you I wanted to look at another passage of Scripture that will be helpful in us kind of tying some loose ends together here. Uh, And this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, which I think is going to be on the screen behind me as well. And it's going to serve at least two purposes here today. Number one is going to clarify the warning we have in Hebrews 13.4. What is the judgment in view? What's that referring to? And it also is going to offer gospel hope for sinners like you and me. I want you to note as well that if you have a good study Bible or most Bibles that have a section of cross-references... 1 Corinthians 6-9 is right here with Hebrews 13-4. Throughout the centuries, scholars have believed these two passages to be connected and have a lot in common, so this is not arbitrary. These two passages are related. Here's what 1 Corinthians 6-9-11 says. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Corinth that needed a lot of correction in the area of sex and marriage. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to share with you four observations from this passage of Scripture. Firstly, 
Remember, to come full circle with the point I was making before, these are not just Paul's words. These are Jesus' words as well. Jesus, the one who is the word, Jesus, the one who is God and who breathed out all the words of Scripture, even through men like Paul. Secondly, here's what's at stake here. For any of these sinful postures that Paul mentions that are in view, it's entrance into the kingdom of God. Eternity with God or eternity apart from God. The stakes don't get any higher than this. This is also what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous in Hebrews 13.4. Thirdly, Paul uses the exact two same words in the Greek here for the sexually immoral and adulterers that we came across in Hebrews 13.4. Respectively, those words in the Greek are pornos and moikos, The first has to do with those who indulge in any of the full range of sexual acts that fall outside of God's design for sex. So, in other words, any form of sexual perversion. The second refers to sexual unfaithfulness in one's own marriage, adultery. That pretty much covers all the bases. And yet, Paul also specifically names here men who practice homosexuality. By the way, inventing a term that is meant to clarify that these are two consenting individuals, so this is not an abusive relationship of some kind. The argument sometimes goes that the Bible here and elsewhere, when it's speaking to homosexuality, isn't speaking to homosexuality itself as a sin. But that within that arrangement, it's just acts of perversion or relationships between two men or two women that are not monogamous are committed that are what's in view. But all of that has already been covered by the previous two terms that Paul has already used. So why would Paul have to draw attention to this particular arrangement here? One thing that we need to understand, we aren't so different, 21st century America, than the rest of the world in time and history. As King Solomon once said, and I think Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And understand that the culture in Corinth which was in the Greco-Roman world, was perhaps the most progressively, sexually progressive culture that existed in the world at that time. And so no doubt that Paul was needing to make some of the same clarifications as to what sex and marriage is and is not as what we are having to make today in our own culture and as Christians. And that is that marriage is a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman for a lifetime. And any arrangement outside of that design is a distortion of what God intended. Fourthly, and here's where we start to turn the corner corner to the gospel, the good news. Both here in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Hebrews, these terms, all of them that are listed there, are in the noun form. They are not verbs. It is not individual actions that are in view here. It is identities or ways of being and living that are being embraced over and against God's revealed design for human flourishing. So whether it's the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or those who practice homosexuality or thievery or the greedy or drunkards, these are not individual actions in view. These are not individual actions that lead to judgment. They are areas of identity that have not yet been submitted to Christ. Areas where a person has not yet come into agreement with Christ as to what is a sin. You see, the thing that will separate a person 
from God forever isn't any one particular action. It's not any great collection of sins that somebody might bring to Christ. It's believing yourself to know better than God does as to what will make you truly happy. Because in that case, what a person is functionally doing is believing themselves to be their own savior. And that's the problem at the end of the day. For as Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. So you see, when we're told in Hebrews that God will judge the sexually immoral and and adulterous, this is true. He will. But that doesn't mean that if you've ever been sexually immoral or committed adultery, that you exist outside the scope of God's mercy. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans 3.23. But if you agree with God's revelation of what is true versus what is false, what is right versus what is wrong, what is good versus what is evil, abundant life versus the pathway of destruction, and if you acknowledge God's ways as right and good, difficult as that path may be to walk, then through the cross you will not be under judgment on the last day but his mercy and forgiveness will cover you. A Christian or a church that holds to this view of marriage and sex will likely be accused, at least by some, of being unloving and ignorant at best, hateful and oppressive at worst. But as Christians, it's actually love that would compel us to uphold God's design for marriage and sex because of this conviction that a person will only find true happiness when they're living in accordance with the one who has designed and created them. And this design for marriage is between one man and one woman for a lifetime, and his design for sex is to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage alone and as a means of reaffirming that same unconditional love that God has made available to you and I through Christ. I'll end this point where I began. This is a highly sensitive issue within our culture and even for some within the church today. Whether because you've experienced infidelity in marriage, whether you have been the one who's been unfaithful, or whether you have viewed sex as something that is more casual than the Bible teaches about it and have engaged in it outside of a marriage context, or perhaps because you've experienced same-sex attraction yourself, and you don't know how to reconcile that with the teaching from Scripture today. I believe God's aim is twofold, and this is mine as well. First of all, to make sure that his good purposes for marriage and sex are made clear, as well as the warnings that come along for rejecting them. But secondly, that his mercy and love are available to all who trust in him, including those who have violated these things. Listen, discipleship doesn't end It doesn't begin and end here on a Sunday service. There's so much more that happens outside the context of a Sunday for us to grow in Christ, for us to grow in this journey where we come against bumps in the road that are very difficult for us to reconcile with the life that we live. These things get worked out in the context of Christian community, and I want to encourage you to do that. I hope that many of you, most of you, are in a tribe If you're not, I would encourage you to explore being a part of one, but please don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Pastor Reuben or Pastor Matt. We want to be able to continue to walk with you in these things. We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. We are in this together. The question at the end of the day is, do we believe Jesus enough to be better that we are willing to submit to him both as our Savior and our Lord and all the things that he teaches us about the path of flourishing? That's what it boils down to. 
There's one last point here in our passage today that's going to totally get shortchanged. But I want to speak to it briefly because it's not altogether unconnected from the point we've just covered. In verses 5 and 6, the author of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How? How do we do this? For he has said, the Lord has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The antidote, to jump quickly to the point that the author is making, the antidote to seeking security in the things of this world, whether that be money or material things or relationships or the approval of man, is faith in the Lord's presence and provision in your life. The one who throughout the book of Hebrews, as we've seen, has presented himself as better than anything the world can offer, he has promised to be with you and to never leave you or forsake you if you trust in him. That Jesus is better is really the fuel for everything, everything that God has instructed us today in Hebrews 13, 1 to 6. We can continue to love each other in brotherly love. Why? Because we have Jesus as the better big brother who continues to love us with perfect love. We can show hospitality to strangers, to people we don't even know. Why? Because Jesus has shown himself to be the better host who welcomed us when we didn't even know him. We can experience solidarity with other people suffering besides our own. Why? Because we have Jesus as the better sympathizer who has compassion for us and our weakness. We can honor God's design and covenant for marriage. Why? Because we have Jesus as the better husband who remains faithful to the covenant he made even when we fail him. And we can be content with what we have. Why? Because Jesus is the better security who provides his presence and provision in our lives without fail. We're going to celebrate communion now. Communion is an opportunity for all who've come to trust in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord to come forward. And maybe that's for the first time for someone here today. And maybe the one thing to ask yourselves before you come forward today and receive communion is, Jesus, do I truly believe that you are better than blank? Only you know what that is. Maybe it's a way of living that you've embraced for far too long that you now recognize that doesn't accord with God's design for true life and what honors and glorifies him. Would you surrender to him today? Would you consider that? Confess it as sin. Confess him as better. Receive his forgiveness. And by his strength, start walking in the path of true life. He's going to meet you there. I know that because he's already proven to us the lengths he's willing to go on the cross. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we look to you this morning. as the author of all truth. I ask you to help us to believe that all truth is for our good. I ask that you would help us to repent where we are walking in ways contrary to your design for our lives. I ask that you would open our eyes to your glory, your beauty, and your holiness so that any motivation to walk in a different direction, to repent, would not be on guilt, but would be out of humility and contrition and awe and who you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to walk 
in brotherly love toward one another. Give us strength for all of these things, Lord. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.